fate would have it, we're recording episode two on February 5th, the 42 year, no, 44 year anniversary of the show we were talking about last time. And now we're talking about the latest live release, Dave's Picks Volume 41, which I am holding in my hand. Before we kind of get into it, we have new mics, which is very exciting. You sound better. As do you. And um, we have new recording equipment, which is excellent. So hopefully the uh, recording sounds good. Some, sh- some quick shout outs before we get into the meat of the show. Uh, first of all, we had a lot of good comments um, when we posted our first episode to various places. Some people who told us that our audio needed to be better, which we already knew, but it was some kind of good reinforcement. It's and almost as if we grabbed our video game headsets and just impromptu recorded an episode about the Grateful Dead without planning. <laughs> and then when people had feedback, we actually listened and went out and, and we hear you. Yeah, it's almost like that. I mean, there was some planning. Uh, there was some research, but yeah, not planning as far as the equipment goes. We just went, went with what we had. Episode one was uh, our only episode that was posted with our basic album art, so to speak, that I made on Canva for free. We now have new official artwork from a great Instagram follow, at Putt. Uh, I told him that I love the font on Working Man's Dead. There are two fonts. There's the one on the top of the album cover that says Grateful Dead. And then there's this sweet hand-drawn Working Man's Dead across the top with the image of the band below it. And so basically all I told him was try to keep the same color as the album cover. And if you can digitally recreate this sweet font um, to say Working Man's Pod, that would be great. And instead, this this lovely person, Sean, Again, at Long Strange Putt on Instagram. Came up with some really cool artwork. It's a picture of uh, Bob and Jerry, I think, on the couch at uh, Letterman. So they are, they're talking, uh, talking dead in that picture, and we're talking dead now on this podcast. So shout out to Sean. Thank you for the awesome artwork. And um, so that's, those are really the two big innovations since the last episode new equipment and a new logo. Well, and a third innovation, if I wanted to see this artwork, where would I go? Where would I follow us at? Great point. So you can follow us on Twitter at Working Man's Pod, on Instagram at Working Man's underscore pod. Crucial difference. And um, you can also go to deadyversion.com, D-E-A-D-Y version.com backslash podcast. And there you can find links to our our page on the Apple Podcast Store, Spotify, or there's a web player with all of our episodes. So go, um, if this is the first episode you've tuned into, go check us out on those places and uh, follow us because we are going to be uh, recording episodes pretty frequently. And if you don't use social media, but you still want to get in touch, workingmanspod at gmail.com. Beautiful. So uh, any other shout outs that you want to give before we get into Dave's Picks Volume 41? No, just the fans. Um, we appreciate the feedback and your patience. The best comment was uh, a couple paragraphs on what we need to improve, ending with, but I'm deaf subscribed. So we, we appreciate that, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Appreciate all of the people who subscribed or listened and didn't subscribe or listened to a little bit and said that the audio quality wasn't what they wanted to hear. Shout out to all of you. All right, so Dave's Picks Volume 41. Let's get into it.
Dave's Picks, Volume 41, the first of four Dave's Picks releases in the year 2022. And um, it's a show that was recorded on Thursday, May 26th, 1977 at the Baltimore Civic Center, now known as the Royal Farms Arena in Baltimore, Maryland. This is a pretty cool building. It's not very far from the Inner Harbor in Baltimore, if you're familiar with the layout of the city. It looks like the capacity is about 13 to 14,000, depending on the stage setup. Um, although according to the inlay within the album, uh, the band was expecting 15,000 people this night. So maybe they <laughs> knew something that we didn't, or they were just selling standing room only tickets. But, um, you know, speaking of the, the packaging and everything, as always, just beautiful packaging by the Grateful Dead for this first um, release in the 11th year of the Dave's Pick series. So it comes in one of these kind of cool trifold um, three CD cases. The cover art is done by Matt J. Adams, who is the artist in residence for 2022, um, taking over the baton from the great um, Helen at Zazcorp on Twitter. If you don't follow her, you definitely should. She's a tremendous artist and she did a great job with all four in 2021. But Matt did some really cool artwork on this. So the basic image is two terrapins. So there's one terrapin dancing and playing a banjo, the other one uh, dancing and playing a tambourine. And then in the background is some of the Baltimore skyline, including the Civic Center right behind the these turtles. And then dancing and singing around them are two crabs, obviously Maryland crab cakes and right. crab seafood. And then there are two Orioles, two Baltimore Orioles flying around as well, which is kind of cool. So a lot of city-specific stuff, um, including these beehive hairdos. I didn't know this until I started doing some research. Baltimore is apparently the hairdo capital of the world, according to John Waters wow. and others. Every year they have something called Baltimore Hun Fest because the Baltimore Hun is like a thing that people in from the city know about where it's like a, you know, some lady with a hairdo talking to people on the street, I guess. Uh, so big in the 70s, um, the movie Hairspray takes place in Baltimore. So the hairdo capital of the world is apparently a real thing. Um, so cool cover art. And then when you open up the uh, CD, you have a good picture of the band playing on stage this night in Baltimore, which is cool. You get to see the way that they were laid out at this point in time, which is you know, similar to how it was in the entire post-hiatus uh, God Show era with, um, actually you can't see Keith on the cover, but you have uh, the two drummers in the background, Billy on um, the left and Mickey on the right as you're looking at the stage. And then from left to right across the stage, you got Jerry, um, Bobby, and Donna, and Phil just kind of lurking in the background in some sweet um, bell-bottom jeans, um, just tearing up his Alembic bass back there. Jerry has a sticker on his guitar that says the enemy is listening, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, you open up the CD one more time and you can see the three CDs as well as a music notes article from, uh, it looks like the Baltimore sun from around this time. I loved this little clip. Did you read this newspaper clip that's on the inside? 
Yeah, of course. I thought that was really neat. <laughs> yeah, I love the Jerry Garcia's Indian bead string of notes on the guitar is one of the descriptions, which is excellent. So the CDs, the artwork on the CDs is really cool. The They are three different colors. The first two have uh, the two crabs that are dancing on the bottom of the uh, album art, um, kind of embossed on the inside. And then the third one has the Oriole from the front cover. Then when you take the CDs out of their cases, the background of each of the three CDs is the top part of the front cover album art. So it's you kind of a cool, little cool surprise. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then below, so there, like I said, you've got the bottom parts with the animals and then you take out the CD and behind it is the top part of the album cover. But then there are three different cool kind of archival things below that. One is the band's travel plans for this run in late 77. One is some handwritten notes about how many people they're expecting and how much money presumably they're expecting to make from these shows. And then the middle one is also just kind of more about travel, I believe. Yeah, it's handwritten travel notes of, you know, what time the crew's departing, when's the sound check, things like that. So really great um, album art, as always. The liner notes are really cool. You've got some stuff from Dave Lemieux, who is the person who oversees all of these releases and he's talking about kind of what was going on in may 77 the fact that this show was in consideration for dave's picks volume one and then was um kind of put on the back burner for a little while before it came out as now dave's picks 41 and i think that the kind of crown jewel of the liner notes in my opinion is this article better dead than like lead ask the audience by david mcquay that was published in the News American on May 29th, 1977. And it's an interesting comparison of the Grateful Dead who had played at the Capitol Center a few nights before Led Zepp- or before the Grateful Dead came in, and then the Dead's show at the Baltimore Civic on this night. Um, a couple of notes that stood out to me that I thought were kind of interesting. We're both big Led Zeppelin fans as well. Right. Um, you know, who isn't? And it's in, obviously we never got to see the Grateful Dead or Led Zeppelin live. John Bonham was dead for more than a decade before we were even born. Mm-hmm. And Jerry died very recent, like very early in our lives. So we didn't have an opportunity. But this is the description of the Led Zeppelin show. The air was heavy and black with ominousness. The contrast between the Led Zeppelin audience and the Grateful Dead audience Thursday night at Civic Center was startling. The Dead, despite its moniker, breathed life into its audience. Freaks who looked like they had just staggered out of an R. Crumb comic book were shaking, dancing in ecstasy. Why the difference? Both audiences were stoned to the gills, yet there was a fathomless ocean between Led Zeppelin, the idol, and audience. There was no distance between the dead and the deadheads. They were hugging each other, all that stuff about love, peace, and happiness that was so proudly strutted like peacock feathers in the Woodstock era was in full bloom. So just kind of interesting from the perspective of someone who is at both shows, kind of the difference between the two both legendary live acts for their own reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that was interesting. And I just wanted to take a moment to shout out all the packaging because it's done so beautifully as always. So that is kind of the packaging, how it all came. Uh, Dave's picks volume 41. It was delivered during a weekend of snowstorms across the East coast and Midwest of the United States. So a lot of time for people to be listening to it. Thursday, May 26, 1977. This is the 10-year anniversary of the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band release, which is 
mildly interesting. It is also the day after the release of Star Wars A New Hope that came out on May 25th, 1977. So in many ways, everyone who went to this concert was living in a different world from the one they were living in 48 hours before this. Yeah. Um, So that is uh, kind of you know, what's going on, um, at that time. But I do think it's interesting that it's the 10 year anniversary of, um, Sergeant Peppers because, you know, that's one of the, I would say most critically acclaimed rock albums of all time. I mean, for about 15 years, it was the number one on Rolling Stones, five, 500 best albums of all time. Right. But then you compare that to the music of 1977, and it's very different. Mm-hmm. 1977 was an unbelievable year for music. Listen to the these songs that at various weeks spent time as number one on the Billboard charts in 1977. Car Wash by Rose Royce. Cool. Blinded by the Light by Manfred Mann. Yep, classic. Rich, yep, Rich Girl by Hall & Oates. Nice. Dan- Dancing Queen by ABBA. Guess. Don't Give Up on Us by David Soule. Okay. Hotel California. Huge. Sir Duke by Stevie Wonder. Also I'm huge. Your, yep. I'm Your Boogeyman by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Okay. Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. Wow. How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees. Wow. <laughs> Best of My Love by The Emotions. And then two movie tie-in songs, Gonna Fly Now, the Rocky theme. And the disco version of the Star Wars theme and Cantana, Cantina Band song by Miko or Mecco. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that. The disco version. Wow. So. That's a not, hot charts. It is. And varied. I mean, you have, you know, 10 years before this, 1967, you have um, Sgt. Pepper's. But that's around the same time that the Temptations are pumping out hits and being told by Motown you know, we want you to go from being the biggest black band in America to the biggest band. It was probably unimaginable that a black artist could have a number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 at that time. I just named three different bands or black performers that had the number one song in 1977 and all making different types of music. So, you know, you have that. You also have foreign artists who are number one on the charts with ABBA, the Bee Gees. Mm -hmm. So interesting, um, interesting time in music 1977 and in the midst of all of this um you have this this great legendary run by the grateful dead in may of 77 so the last thing about this period in time hotel california was the number one album in america this week the following week it would be rumors which was released in february but never didn't hit number one on the charts until june for some Mm -hmm. reason so two i mean absolutely legendary records rumors in hotel california are two of the best-selling records of the 70s and rumors i think is one of the five best-selling records ever period so you know great you know pop and rock music that is kind of in the the zeitgeist at the time a couple more notes on the civic center it was and i'm not sure if it still is but it was a legendary concert venue some of the artists that it hosted were elvis the beatles led zeppelin rolling stones chicago the grateful dead multiple times and it was the former home of the ahl hockey team from baltimore and the baltimore bullets who then became the washington bullets and now the washington wizards yeah uh the dead this is their second live release from the baltimore civic center dicks picks 23 was the september 17th 1972 show at the Baltimore Civic. So 
really a different era entirely in um, September 72. That was Pigpen would have been would have stepped away from the band at that point, but obviously following right after Europe 72, um, you know, just a totally different era compared to this 77 period with, you know, the benefit of, I think, four more studio albums. Plus in this show, they had the benefit of all of the Terrapin Station music, which that album had not been released yet. So different time in the band's history. This tour, I think many deadheads think of May 77 as the peak of the number the one live right. performing. Yeah. This spring tour started on, if you think of this part of their performances as part of the spring tour, it starts on April 22nd in Philadelphia and it ends one show after this one, uh, two nights afterward, uh, May 28th in Hartford. Close to your hometown. Yes. And that show has been released. Well, actually, let, let, let's get into this whole, the all of the releases from this period of time. So they the Dead performed 30 shows in 50 days, if you include their early June shows back in California. I think mostly at, at Winterland. But May was a specifically busy month. 19 shows over the course of May. And with this one now being released, 15 of those 19 have been released as wow. Dead Live releases. The um, only ones that haven't are the month opening run, three nights in New York City, and um, the first of two nights at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, May 18th. Those are the only ones that haven't been released, at least parts of three of their six April shows, and three of the four shows in June have also been released. So, you know, this is obviously a part of the Dead's history that the people love, number one. Right. Number two, that the dead archivist, Dave Lemieux, he really likes. But I think also these are Betty boards that sound amazing. The recordings are phenomenal. And so I think that that also has something to do with why they've released so much of this material. This is the sixth show from 77 to be released just in the Dave's Pick series. So that's the most of any year, one ahead of 1974 now. But this is the first May 77 show to be released since Dave's Picks 1 which was the previous night at the mosque in Richmond. But two other May 77 shows were released as Dick's Picks, Volume 3 um, from May 22nd in Pembroke Pines, Florida, and Volume 29, which is um, from the 19th at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. And the last time you and I were together, we actually listened to part of that show, The um, Promised Land that opens that show, where Jerry's just doing weird and cool stuff on the guitar. Right. Yeah, Um, yeah. So There's a particularly good he's gone from that show if i remember correctly yeah there's there's that's an unbelievable show um 77 so like i said the most popular year for the dave's picks releases with six having been released it's also the most popular year in dick's picks six of the 36 uh releases for dick's picks were from 77 so you know i i think that part of it is that they have them in such good quality from the betty boards um, and that they've got these reel-to-reel recordings that have held up really nicely compared to maybe cassette recordings or dat tapes from the 90s and 80s. But, I mean, it is an unbelievable year for the dead. And it can be both. It can be both the Betty boards are great and then also the dead are just on top of the world in 77. And you put the two together and you get some magic. 
Yeah, I, I think that that's right. So interestingly to me, there are a lot of deadheads, maybe not a lot of deadheads. Realistically, given the internet, it's probably a small but vocal contingent. Who the are, loudest part of deadheads. <laughs> yeah, uh, who are sick of 77 releases. So listen to, if you go to the dead.net forums and look at what some people are saying, something that, that one person said, and I couldn't verify it using dead disk, but someone said that there have been 31 total releases of 1977 shows across all of the different live releases, whether Dick's Picks, Road Trips, Box Sets, what have you. And there have been 30 total live releases from the 80s as a decade. <laughs> I am not sure if that's true. That's a crazy stat if it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that part of that would potentially be related to the fidelity of the recordings and how they sound. If you want an example of that, look no further than disc two of this set where yes. there is one sh- song from Dave's Picks 40 um, recorded in August of 1990 and the recording just does not sound nearly as good. It's kind of jarring actually. I mean, we'll get there when we talk about disc two, but it is a different beast altogether than these really high quality Betty boards from 1977. A little bit more about 77. Like I said, this is a, a busy time period. This tour was at a pretty, uh, pretty good pace right before this tour. I think that they were putting the finishing touches on Terrapin Station when they were in New York. I know that it was partially recorded in New York or mastered in New York, so that would make sense. Although I wasn't able to find the exact dates for that. And then when this tour ended on May 28th in Hartford, they went to New York City um, for the premiere of the Grateful Dead movie, which premiered on June 1st at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York City. So um, that movie made up from video recorded at the band's quote-unquote last show at Winterland in 1974 and directed by Jerry Garcia. So they were all on hand for the the world premiere of that, which is kind of cool. Right after that, in June, they played a couple shows, like I said, in California, and then Mickey gets into a car crash that resulted in them canceling their summer tour plans. The famous English Town show in September was their first show back, and they were like the walking wounded. Mickey was had a broken arm and Donna had just had surgery. She had to like sit in a chair on stage to perform. So kind of an interesting time. So May 77, a lot of different albums have come out at this point in time. The dead have a ton of different songs to pull from in their history. And you would think that that would mean that they didn't repeat songs night in and night out, but that's actually not the case. When you look at the the stats from May 77, there's a lot of repetition night in and night out. But what's interesting kind of in the bigger picture of May 77 is that this show only repeated two songs from the night before. And even those two, one of them is Estimated Profit, but that was played the prior night without Eyes of the World on the back end. So it's kind of a different vibe. And then Around and Around, which is just a chalk set to closer in this time period it was the set to closer in our last episode which was from 78 it's the set to closer for most of the late 70s <laughs> um so yeah that's those are the only two songs that were repeated and then you know when you compare other set lists there's quite a bit more repetition for example the jack row that we're going to talk about in a little while hadn't been played for the two prior shows before that 
but for a period before that in May 77, it was played four nights in a row. Um, Music Never Stopped was played multiple nights in a row. New Minglewood Blues was played eight nights in a row for a period of (laughs) for a period of um, May. So there was a lot, even though the, they had a lot of different songs to draw from, they were, there were some songs that they just got into a groove with in May 77. And they were like, we're going to just keep playing this probably because it was fun to play and they were killing it, which, you know, good, good enough reason. Mm -hmm. Um, Set one opens with the music never, the music never stopped. This was typically a set closer um, at this time. It was a a set, either set one or set two closer, twenty one times in nineteen seventy seven. So by far the most common set closer of this year, and it was a set set one closer, um, or just a set closer, I guess, fifty seven times between nineteen seventy seven and nineteen seventy nine, which is by far the most common set closer of any song in their catalog. And yet here you have it as a set opener and it is phenomenal. I don't know what else to, I mean, it's so good. It's so good. I mean, I wrote the first word I wrote taking notes. Wow. (laughs) Just wow. It's so good. It's a, it's a bop. I dare you to listen to this and not be, you know, moving your head to the beat at the by the two minute mark I and mean, this is a groove it really is it's such a good way to start the show mm-hmm. i mean you you just like you were saying like you just you can't not move your head you can't not dance to it it's a great song to start to start the show and to kind of get the people moving i I kind of wish that they would have opened more shows in this era with uh, the music never stopped because it, it is a great opener. Yeah. And it's not not that they didn't ever. They did two nights before um, on uh, May 22nd. So it, they did from time to time. It's just it was way more common that it would be a, a set closer um, instead. And, you know, neither inherently good nor bad. Just I loved no, just it as fact. an opener here. Yeah, it it set the tone for such a groovy night and and it just did it so well um the the last note that i took on this song top three ever version of this song i mean this was this was something different yeah i agree i have i didn't check heady version to see if the people agree there's obviously also some bias in heady version with songs that have been officially released tend to get more love and more upvotes than others and so this one this show only coming out recently i think that some versions of songs on here that should be way higher are not um but yeah i would be curious if you want to uh do a quick heady version search and see where it ranks i would be intrigued by that but yeah i had a couple of other notes on this one really good interplay between keith and jerry to start the show uh which is to be expected in may 77 those two had great interplay throughout this entire uh, period of time. I think that by the end of the seventies, um, Keith was starting to flag a little bit and didn't have as much creative juice, but in this era in May 77, he sounded great and he and Jerry are doing really nice things together. And then a great solo by Jerry in the middle of this song, which is awesome. The other thing that stood out to me about this song is the, the vocals because 
you can hear everyone's part. So Bob and Donna's vocals sound really good together. And Jerry's supporting vocals are also pretty clear throughout this song. And he's harmonizing with Donna in the background. There's a part that I marked down the one minute, 45 second point. He just, he sounds great there. So a good start, not just, you know, with their musicianship, but with their vocals as well. Jerry really comes in and the solo really gets vibing around the six minute mark. That's when I was just like officially blown away, like impressed. (laughs) And then at the six minute mark, blown away. Six minute mark, you went from wow to damn. great start to the show we both you put in disc one you're you know you're already expecting great things because you know it's may 77 you're excited that came in the mail you're ready and then yeah boom um by the way heady version has it as the number 10 version ever so in in the top 10 but i think that's too low i agree well speaking of a song that's too low on heady version the next song is sugary so like many sugaries from this era, from 1977, this is a jammed out... Long yes, sugary. Long sugary. So this one clocks in at 15 minutes, 37 seconds. And um, it could have been 55 minutes, 37 seconds with the way they were playing. This song is so good. And the first note that I have is, not in any hurry, nor should they be. Mm. They are just like... I don't know the exact word to use. It's like precise doesn't do it justice because it's not just precise in the way that they're playing it. It is like mindful, the pace that they're playing it at. It just, it sounds like it's very intentional the way that it's, the way that it's paced and it sounds fantastic. Um, so not just like Jerry's vocals, not just his guitar, Everything that's going on in this song is really good, but a couple things that stood out to me. Um, during the first solo, Bob's rhythm is very interesting. It's almost like plucky. It kind of sounds banjo-y a little bit, honestly. Hmm. And that's kind of a cool thing happening in the background, and it suits this song well because of you know the, the style that the song is performed in. And then, again, around the 12-minute mark of this song, Bob is, again, just doing really great stuff behind uh, a killer Jerry solo. And so, yeah, just, it's just a really good version. What did you, what did you think about it? No, I completely agree. Um, I, I wrote just that Jerry sounds smooth. And I think that that goes with your, like they, they weren't in a hurry in this song. He was just, he was chilling. And yeah, I think if they didn't cut him off, it could have been a, a 50 minute version of the song. Cause he was just, <laughs> He was smooth. He was going along and he wasn't in a hurry. He wasn't trying to do too much. Um, and then 
I also just wrote that Donna's backing harmony in the chorus here stood out to me. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. she was, as always, she was sounding good that night. Yeah, definitely. So that I, we need, neither of us talked about Phil. Sugary is not exactly like a bass showcase for Phil. Um, he and the drummers are all are all doing good stuff throughout this. The big thing for me with the drummers, and you mentioned it, that they're just taking their time. I mentioned it too. There are a lot of songs on this album where the they change the tempo subtly throughout the song, and the drummers are maybe sometimes driving it, maybe sometimes they're just along for the ride. But it's really great. It's um, it it happens appropriately, and it it adds a lot to making it just an enjoyable listen when. A song like Sugary that starts out slow, picks up for the solo, slows back down, picks back up. Um, it, it just makes it sound really good. As you know, you were saying about Music Never Stopped, that it's number 10 on Heady Version. This is currently 16th, but four of the top five Sugaries are from May 77. So <laughs> it's pretty clear that this era of Sugary is, is the peak. And Dave Lemieux said that in um, his Seaside chat introducing this album. But I just think this is a criminally underrated <laughs> on Eddie version, uh, Sugary. <laughs> I, I think and hope that maybe as this album is out in circulation for longer, it will kind of slowly rise up the charts. Um, and I mean, the other thing is, who cares, realistically? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, it is it is just a great version. And I would like uh, it to be higher just so that more people who are going to Eddie version and looking for good versions of this find it because it, I enjoyed it so, so much. Um, so we go from sugary into mama tried. Um, I mean, this is a struggle for me with a lot of the songs in set one, to be honest, they're just very good and it's hard to really find specific things to talk about for them because it's just like so consistently good in almost every way that it's like, uh, what, what do you call it on this one? I mean, (laughs) literally everything is good. I think the yeah. Keith's guitar playing stood out to me. Um, and, and the vocals are just, are really good. What stood out to you on this one? Um, it, I kind of agree that going down from song three, mama tried to song nine, Jack Rowe, all of them are just ab- above average and solid, but nothing stood out in a good way. Like there wasn't a glaring peak nor a glaring valley. I mean, just the consistency that they had coming into this this era and the show in the Civic Center was great. What stood out to me most about this Mama Tried was just the the credit to the recording process and the clarity in the bass and the guitar from damn near 45 years ago is just... I just can't believe it. Like, in 45 years the recording equipment that we use to make new music um, or enhance, you know, remaster old music is going to be so different than today. But I mean, whatever they were doing back then, and they were not eyeing the Dave's picks volume 41 release as they went into Baltimore in 77, but just a, just an impressive save of that sound put into 45 years later is just just amazing 
It is. It also, it makes me, I know that the dead were always very kind of forward thinking in that area from the fact that Owsley Stanley, when he was kind of their benefactor in their early years, was so keyed into how do I make the sound as good as possible um, for the people in the audience and how do I record it in as high fidelity a version as I can so that I can listen to it later. I know that he was like very ahead of the game in that, but what it makes me wish honestly, is that the other bands that we love that were performing in this era had felt the same way. Because recently, I think maybe two months ago, Pink Floyd released a bunch of live recordings from the early 70s, like from right before uh, Dark Side of the Moon came out. So early 70s, 71 and 72, I think. Maybe as late as 60 or as early as 69. And it just doesn't sound nearly as good. Um, like I'm not talking about their, their playing just sonically, like you're talking about this sounds so good. The recording, and it is amazing. I mean, deadheads, honestly, we're kind of spoiled in that regard. They're, like think about how many live releases Led Zeppelin's put out. It's like five, yeah. maybe, maybe less. And so, you know, comparatively, it is kind of amazing that four times a year we just get these awesome sounding <laughs> live releases and, you know, some sound better than others, but uh, this one does sound great. And, you know, I, I think that what you're saying about just the consistency of the, this next stretch of songs in a kind of, as they say, songy first set, you know, you have a 15 minute long sugary, but then after that, like the next, there are eight more songs eight? in set yeah. one or nine after sugary. And the longest one is eight minutes. Business-like, so, I guess. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I like that. It is. I mean, they're they're not really jamming it out. They were saving that for the second set. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so you have uh, Mama Tried, which is uh, just over four minutes. Good version. Sunrise, just over four minutes. Also a good version. Just the fourth Sunrise that they had ever played live. A song that debuted on May 12th of 1977. And it sounds good. I think that um, Donna's singing is very emotional, which makes, you know, adds to the song. I don't think that this one is quite as good as the one from February 78 that we heard on our last uh, episode, but you know, it's, it's still good and it fits in where it comes in the show, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, I was comparing it to the, um, the other show that we recorded and she sounds not lower, but fuller. Does that make sense? Um, like almost more alto versus soprano which is not a bad thing. It just, that was how she was sounding this year. And on the lower theme, the lower notes in this version had a little push behind them, which kind of gave it like a little darker feel. Hmm. And I liked it. You know, it's coming off of a mama tried, which is a pretty, you know, upbeat, upbeat, groovy song. And then, you know, you get to be calm and just, listen to donna belt it out right (laughs) yeah yeah and i think the band gets to take a minute to kind of catch their breath before they go into a really good version of deal Mm -hmm. um i i I mean i I love every version of this song it's (laughs) so good but this one is i mean just like any other deal from this era it's just excellent right i mean i don't really know what more to say about it there's there's no there are like no missteps throughout this song yeah my my problem with this song was that it was only five minutes and 40 seconds long. It yeah. Give me another two minutes a deal, please. Yeah. They did keep it pretty tight. You're right. Um, and I am not enough of a May 77 deal scholar to tell you if that's like abnormal for the era. 
I did listen to a lot of the shows from around this one while I was waiting for Dave's Picks 41 to arrive. I don't, I can't think of any deals that I remember coming in the second set and being particularly jammy. I mean, deal is pretty much a consistent first set song, but that doesn't mean that they're always five minutes long. I mean, a lot of them are 10, 12 minutes long. It's interesting. They actually looking at the, um, looking at the set lists that I have, um, up from May 77, they hadn't played deal for the four shows before this. They had really given it kind of a break. Um, so yeah, they weren't playing a ton of deal actually around this, this little run that they were in by, by late May. Um, this May 77 tour is just an interesting one because it, I almost feel like it changes around May 12th. The early part before that, you know, you have New Haven, Boston, obviously Cornell, famous show, Buffalo, shout out to Uncle Kyle, his, mm-hmm. yeah, his best Grateful Dead show, which starts with an absolutely ripping help slip, Frank. And then by like the 12th and 13th, there's more of the, I think, more of the Terrapin Station songs that are really kind of coming in night in and night out. So speaking of Terrapin Station songs, the next song is uh, Passenger. It's coming after Deal. Um, you have uh, Bob and Donna sharing the lead on um, Passenger. Like Sunrise, they had only started playing this very recently. This was only the fifth Passenger they had ever played live. Uh, they debuted it on May 15th, um, and then they had played it most of the shows since between then and this show um they're kind of starting to get a feel for how to best perform it live and you can tell i mean it it sounds good there is this weird tone that bob has this weird effect did you pick up on that i did that's what i wrote down yeah it's like how would you even describe it i almost like they were trying to sound like the 70s era classic rock you know type music I, that's the vibe i got from that rhythm guitar it's was like they were a, going for like you know at that time like the modern sound mm. there's there's this it wasn't throughout the entire song but in the middle of the song he had this thing that was like a womp womp like it wasn't like a wah <laughs> it's just it's just weird i don't know how to describe it Um, but yeah, it is, it is interesting the way that what he's doing with the rhythm, Jerry's guitar sounds great. And Mm -hmm. the guitar work that he does on passenger, I think it just, it's just hot. And so it's kind of cool. I like that deal passenger combo. Me too. Yeah. I think, I think it's a good tandem in the middle of set one from passenger. They go into brown eyed women, you know, really like sugary deal and brown eyed women are three of my favorite set one songs that they could have been playing around this time with Bertha being a fourth and they played all four of them in this set. So I, I was pretty thrilled with the way that this set list unfolded. Um, I think that the brown eyed women, much like we were saying about the deal, the only thing is I maybe wish it was a little bit longer. It comes mm-hmm. in right around six minutes. And I just didn't really have a lot of notes on it. It's it's a really good version, but there's nothing that like really leapt out at me as this is different from others in this era or this is what made it stand out. It's just kind of like the deal. It's just a very solid 
workmanlike performance by the band of a song that I really love. I, I also, I only had one note and it was that the uh, rhythm and backing sections energy during the guitar sto- solo stood out to me. Um, like behind Jerry, the support that he had uh, during his solo really stood out. But like you said, that was my only note on the song because it was just a, yeah, that was good. Yeah, all of the all of the keystones of what you'd expect from a brown eyed woman in this era. During Jerry's solo, Keith doing some cool stuff around it, which is always the case. Um, Phil keeping it groovy on the bass, mm-hmm. and Bob, he's always good on um, this song. I mean, it's just literally everything that you'd expect from a good 1977 brown eyed woman. Check, 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 and it just makes for just a really good song that. I mean, then leads us into a slower part of set one. So now they've played um, Brown Eyed Women. They have played seven songs in, I don't even know how long, an hour, maybe? Maybe less. I think a little under, yeah. Um, And they're going into a slower part of set one, starting with Looks Like Rain. How do you feel about this song, generally speaking? Before listening this time eh? and listening to this version higher yeah. it is not a top 10 dead song for me but it is was... it a top 10 bob song it's not for me <laughs> i'll just say that <laughs> and, no, and i, I, I don't say... think it is no i don't think it is but the way that he and donna were going back and forth um in this particular version uh, especially at this about the seven minute mark, I thought was really moving. I I really liked what they were doing in this version. Now I I'm not gonna champion looks right looks like rain, but I I liked it moved up in my in my charts after hearing this version. Nice. So for me, I think that part of why I don't get very excited when I see this song on a set list is because a lot of the stuff that Bob does on it later, and especially in the 80s and 90s, is just like over the top hammy. When at the end he starts to do the whole can't stand the rain uh, breakdown for like three minutes. It's never been that long. I'm exaggerating. But when he does it for like a really long time and is just like really belting it out, it's just a little bit over the top. It's not my zone of what I really like Bob to do. Um, and like, you know, Bob's an amazing musician and I think he's a great singer. I'm not, obviously I love Bob. It's not like that. It's just, this is not my favorite stuff that he does. If I'm going to get like, you know, a Bob Coda at the end of a song, give me sunshine daydream at the end of sugar mag. I don't want, can't stand the rain and so <laughs> i do like his versions of this song with donna i think that you're right um when you described it as moving when they're singing together it does sound considerably better to me and it is more compelling for me to listen to and so i did like this version although i do think that i have some baggage <laughs> of it looks like rain that makes me just see it on a set list and not get excited which is the a stark opposite from oh well one more thing about it before we move on to the next song I do really like how soft it gets between 5.30 and 7 minutes. It's like this song starts out kind of slow. And this is what I was talking about earlier with the tempo changes. Starts out kind of slow, picks up, and then 
they really slow it down mm-hmm. and and it the playing gets very soft like it's it's noticeably quieter than other parts of this of this album and then it rises back up for kind of an ending flourish um that doesn't go on too long for my taste so i thought that this was a good version um and you know like i said i might have some baggage with it a song i have no baggage with is jack which is the, the song that came after this this is a new song for 1977 and this version was only the sixth live version that they ever performed of the seven times that they played it in 1977 so they played it this night then once more in 77 at Winterland on June 8th and then didn't play it again for the rest of the year. Did, had you heard the song before this version? Yes, but not frequently. Yeah. I, I Sam, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I think I had probably heard a few versions. I definitely heard, um, I definitely heard a couple other versions from 77. I have a note in my phone where I save versions of songs that I hear on the Grateful Dead channel or elsewhere when I think like, oh, that's a standout version. I want to make a note of that. And one that I had was Jack Arrow 51877 at the Fox mm. Theater. I think that's my favorite version of this song. Um, but this one is also quite good. I, this song, every time I hear it, I think of a sea shanty. I mean, the <laughs> the, con- the content of the lyrics is about someone on a ship, so it makes sense. But Man, I like this song. <laughs> I like this song a lot. What do you think? I wasn't as high on it as you were. Um, it, It's not one, admittedly, it's not one that I listen to very often. I thought that it was an interesting set list placement um, to be here. I guess I, I wanted something a little hotter after It Looks Like Rain. I could see that. And not that it was bad or a bad version. It just wasn't... I wrote down one word in my notebook. I wrote down solid. But I think that's back to that point of there wasn't anything wrong with it. There wasn't a dip or a valley. But it wasn't standout. It did not blow me away or impress me. And if this is what the typical Jack O'Row sounds like, good, because it's a good version of the song. But I I was not moved by it as much as you were. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying it was my favorite song on, on the in the first set. Um, I do think that the the pace of set one, if you think about it as you know, after Brown Eyed Women going into the the softer section with Looks Like Rain, a quieter Bob song, and then Jack Arrow, a quieter Jerry song, it kind of makes sense. And then we get into the the hotter ending to set one after this. But I I kind of liked it. Uh, where it came and I, I do like this song um, maybe a little bit more than you I think Jerry was loving playing the song around this time because like I said I think I said this earlier they played it four nights in a row earlier in May then took a night off played it again two nights off and now they played it at this show and then that was like I said about it for 77 the version from the Fox Theater I think still is my favorite the difference between that one and this one is that this one had a slightly sloppier intro it took the band a little while to get going with this song um, for like the first 15, 20 seconds. Whereas at the Fox, it was the fourth straight show that it had been played and they just came in hot. They were ready for it and right on top of it from the get go. Um, but yeah, I like the song. I'm, it has not been on any of the other Dave's picks that I own. And 
I also have the last couple of box sets and I don't think it's on either of those. So it's, it's kind of fun to get a completely different song than the ones I'm, I'm used to hearing. Maybe that's what um, I liked a lot about it. The last two songs to close out um, set one are not slow whatsoever. No. Beginning with New Minglewood Blues, which is one of your favorite dead songs. And it sounds great in 1977. And it, it sounds great on May 26, 1977 as well. <laughs> yeah. And particularly Jerry, um, a great first solo and then a walk down on the bass from Phil. And then a even better, even more impressive second guitar solo. Um, you know, I was smile came to my face when I saw that that was part of the set list and, uh, Jerry just crushed it. I have said this to you before. I don't know if I've said it on the mic before, but the secret sauce to new Minglewood is all in the keys. So if the keys are hot, you're going to get a good version. And I'm sorry, but in this version, the keys were not hot. So this is not an iconic new Minglewood. I don't think that doesn't mean it's a bad one though. Jerry in particular stood out as just crushing it on the guitar solo. Well, I love that you are as a as our resident Minglewood head. I think that your analysis and the setting up that the keys are what kind of secretly makes this song what it can be. Uh, I love to hear that. I'm going to pay attention to that from here out. And, can I go on um, my gravestone? Here lies <laughs> David Lehman, resident New Minglewood head. Honestly, there are worse things that could be up there. <laughs> Um, so I mean, it could be worse, I guess, but yeah, I mean, I I think that, um, if I have any say in what's on there, I won't, I won't vouch for it being a mingle head, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. It's not an iconic version, but it is a good version. Bobby's vocals are very snarly on this version. Oh yeah. Um, little, little angry back there, which is good. That's a good thing. Um, cause I want that roar on Lion's Den when he comes comes out in the first uh, first line. Yeah, absolutely. This song, um, I listened to this song when I was running earlier this week, and it just carried me right along. It's interesting. I The part of my run where I was listening to this involved an uphill part, and I was actually moving faster on the uphill part listening to this song than I was on a flat listening to Bertha right after it. So this song was really kind of locomotive for me, and... This is the part of the album, if, you, if you've if you ripped this CD onto like your phone or you know if you still use an iPad, MP3 player, whatever, this part of the song, I think, would be the exercise portion. New Minglewood, Bertha, Samson. Um, that's a pretty good trifecta um, yeah. to exercise to. So the New Minglewood goes, like I said, into Bertha. What's kind of special about this is that this Bertha was a, a set opener in 77 it was the most common set opener of the year 11 times a set opener in 1977 and this was the only time it closed set one in all of 1977 and also the first time it closed set one since 1972 and the last time until december 1983 and and on that note that it's not the opener um it the song kind of starts i wrote down that it starts with an auxiliary energy rather than an opener energy, it felt a little, it felt like they were pulling back on the reins. Like they didn't want Bertha to steal the show of that music never stopped or that sugary. Like they, they didn't want people to remember set one because of the Bertha. They wanted it to them to remember it from something else. And that's fine. And they can do that. But it almost felt like the, the calm before the storm of set two, rather than 
the exclamation point on the end of set one. Yeah, that's I I wrote down patient. That was one patient. Of the great. Yes. Sum that all up in one nutshell word: patient. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean they they really were. It's a patient tempo and patient singing that leads that gets us into this song. We kind of get our our feet wet and get uh, get comfortable with what's going on with what's happening in the beginning of this song and then it goes into a solo that absolutely burns um right around like the three four minute mark and then back into like that slow patient part for like another minute in the middle between i wrote down 445 and six minutes building up into the any more section at the end the that kind of last section of singing um where the tempo comes back up and we end set one on a high note with uh anymore anymore conclusion in wrapping it up the drummers were really together throughout set one they are on time they're working as one unit pretty much and they just sound really good i don't think that we talked about that enough in the individual songs but when i think back on this set as a whole that's something that stands out to me is that these these guys were locked in and i know that that's kind of a calling card of 77 is that the drummers were really locked in with each other but it it really does stand out Okay, so we are back into set two of Dave's Picks. Volume. Had to go change the CD. <laughs> yeah, had to change to disc number two um, of this three-disc release. So disc two and disc three are mostly set two of this night in Grateful Dead history. And set two begins with Samson and Delilah, um, which was... You know, pretty popular song in this era. It was played 12 times in May alone of the 19 shows that they played, mostly as a set two opener, um, eight times of those 12. And it's the most common set two opener of this era by far. If you look at 77 through 79, it's not even close. Samson is easily the, the number one most common set two opener. And that's not a bad thing. This is a, I think, a good way to start. Uh, set two, it you know gives us some high energy, and um, one thing that I really like about this as a beginning to set two is the 
easing in period that this song takes. So it's, it starts like the first thing that I really heard that was really standing out to me was Phil. Phil on the bass. Absolutely. I wrote that he was stealing the show. Yeah. He sounds awesome in this song. And then there you have this intro like guitar lick, which is fantastic and a really good high energy way to start set two and get the people going again. You know, we've all had a chance to just kind of settle down and, you know, get a drink, go to the bathroom, you know, do whatever you do between the sets. And then we're coming right back in. This song has some similar energy, I think, to New Minglewood in the way Bob sings it. Hmm. See a little shared DNA there at all or no? Yeah, I, not until you said it. But yeah, um, just like that that bluesy strength that both those songs, but in particular this Samson and Delilah has. Um, and to go back to what we were talking about at the end of set one, the drumming on this song in particular and this show as a whole uh, impresses me every time. I mean, this song's drum work is fantastic. The strong but not overwhelming presence that the snare drum has, which is like you know the loudest drum in the on the drum kit, and then the energy that the bass drum was bringing too, just fantastic. Um, interesting comparison though. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that you just said. Um, there's also some cowbell going on with Mickey in this song too, which is, sounds cool. It's crazy too, because when you look at the pictures that come in this release of there's a, there's one that's like a close up of Mickey's drum kit and it's huge. He has like a million toms. He has a ton of different symbols. And then there's just a cowbell tucked in there somewhere <laughs> and it comes through so clearly on this recording. And it, it just, it sounds really good. It adds, I think quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this is a great way to start set two, get the energy up, Bob's voice is sounding good, and um, we're kind of off and running. All right, song number two on set two is High Time. So I really like this song. Um, it's not like a live staple by any stretch, and I would have probably expected this to come in set one, honestly, um, if I was going to guess where it was going to fall in in this set list. But you know, a nice eight minute, 11 second high time in the beginning of set two. They only played the song three times in 1977. And this show actually was the last time they played it for more than a hundred shows. The next time they put it after this was February, 1979. So they really put it on the shelf after this. I don't know why it sounds great. It does sound great. It's a really pretty song and it just, it's just nice. It's a nice first Jerry song. Um, and it's also the last moment of relative quiet and softness that we get for the rest of the set. And I'm not mad about it. It's just, it's just a, a nice, a nice second, second song of the set. Yeah. And, um, that's a, that's a great point that after set one, where it was kind of like back and forth and, and back and forth, you know, in my head, I was like, oh, that's just gonna, that's just gonna keep up. We had a high energy Samson, and now we're going for a little a lull down into high time, and it and it's it sounds great, um, but you're right. This is there's no more lulls. No, after this. this is it. <laughs> we're off and running after this. And this song, um, the the what Keith is doing on the piano sounds really good. He's kind of made this song his own. He was not the band's pianist when this song was recorded um, for 
working man's dead and um yeah it's just what he's doing sounds really good the harmonies between the singers sound really good i don't think that phil was really singing even in harmony at this point i think he's talked about it how you know he had vocal cord surgery i think in the early 70s but then also by the time they came back from their hiatus his voice didn't sound quite as as good quite the same um and um but the harmonies between bob donna and jerry sound i mean pretty much just as good almost as good i would say as the album version the harmonies between phil bob and uh jerry that exist on that so good song i was happy to see it in the set and i listened to the um serious xm special where dave introduced this album and he made a point of playing this part of the show because he said that he thought it was such a a great high time and he also really liked the song that comes after this big river which he said is his favorite bob cowboy song and he thought that this was a really exceptional version i agree i don't think that it's like the greatest big river i've ever heard but in fairness to big river i'm not sure how much i can parse different versions of it to be honest i think that a lot of the bob cowboy songs it's harder for me to pick out one that's you know stands head and shoulder head and shoulder above the others but i think this is a good version it's you know a little bit longer than the ones i'm kind of familiar with and a little bit more jammed out and it's it sounds really good yeah and i liked that it was jammed out i thought that that was a, a strength and parroting what we talked about in set one solid nothing nothing remarkable remarkable but nothing bad about this big river i mean just they could have played any song here and it would have sounded good really because they're they're just hot in 77 so a a good song and a good version um and then we move into a long crowd chant um and it, it fe- I understand why they have structured it this way, especially when we start talking about disc three. The first time I listened to it that it played through, I was like, is, this is a little out of place. Like, why not put this at the end of disc three? Um, but the second time that I listened to it after having listened to disc three, um, I came to appreciate it a little bit more. The fact that a song from a different show is plugged in right here. So let's get into this. This is a point of contention among deadheads. There are a lot of vocal people online in the deadhead communities that I follow and that I participate in that were not happy about this song being included on this album. There were a lot of people who were like, it's just really jarring to have a, a, you know, summer 90 song put in the middle of a May 77 album. And so I'm not sure how many of them had heard like before when volume 40 came out and Dave in his intro video, he was so pumped about the fact that he had convinced Rhino to do two full shows from the summer of 1990. And, you know, rather than a three disc release, Dave's picks 40 was a four disc release that are two complete shows, but they couldn't fit this song on it. And so he was like, but good news, we've got space on the next one. And so we're just going to put it in there so that if you're a completionist, you can put it in. So there are a lot of people who are like, this is jarring. I don't like this. I, if you were going to put filler on this album, you should have put it from one of the other May 77 shows that's only been released partially or maybe one of the April 77 shows. That's all fine. I, in my opinion, 
I, you know, I, I can, I could say this, but I'm going to go to Jim in Maryland, a contributor on the dead.net forums, because I think that he sums up my thoughts on this pretty well. If it's a problem, parentheses, us blues, then go through the trouble, work the metadata and place it where it belongs. If you're a physical media person, then burn a new copy sans us blues and toss it in the six disc changer instead of the original. It takes about 20 minutes tops. Keep the original so you don't scratch or damage it. And all is right with the world. <laughs> I might not have put the Dave's Picks 40s leftovers on this particular release, but these are first world problems to be sure. It's not that hard to grab it, relabel, etc., and put it where it belongs. That's kind of my general sense is like, I, I don't really, it doesn't bother me. And I had already ripped this to my computer so that I could put it onto my phone and stuff. And I just did the same thing. I moved this track to the end of disc three. Um, and then I realized that I'd already ripped volume 40. And so I moved it to the end of disc four of that set. So, you know, not, not a big deal, but I do agree with you that the first time I was listening to it through, it is kind of jarring. And the first point that you talked about the three minutes of not fade away crowd noise, that is especially jarring because it's three full minutes plus right. of just, um, the crowd. Just chanting. crowd. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is kind of an interesting like artifact because there's a not fade away on disc three and it was before the audience had started doing that. You know, this is before the arena dead mode that they got into in the mid eighties where that moment you and I were at a not fade away live last summer, 2021 and the whole, yeah. yeah, The not fade away chant is awesome in person. It feels great. Like it's a very, um, meaningful community building way to end a, end a show. And I like it a lot. It's just different from what's going on in this era. And it's a lot to scrub through when you're listening on future listens to three minutes of not fade away before a, you know, a fine U S blues. Um, so, you know, I do get it. A lot of people had said like, you know, just if you didn't want to put it on the full release, just email that track out to people who got Dave Spix 40 you know, whatever, six to one, half dozen, the other, I'm not going to be too critical of the Grateful Dead for giving us more music. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's, I agree with that point. And I agree with Jim from Maryland. It, an extra Grateful Dead song is not going to kill you. Just enjoy it. Yeah. Is it out of place? Sure. Is it at an interesting spot in the show? Sure. But it's, it's a bonus, bonus music. And yeah. that's only a good thing. Yeah, I agree. And did you have any thoughts about this version in particular before we get to disc three? No, I, I'm, I'm not blown away by this. I thought it was a decent version. Yeah, I agree. I didn't have anything, any big notes. It stands out from the other music just because, I mean, obviously you have a completely different band at that point. Brent is in the band instead of Donna and Keith, and it's one of Brent's last shows with the Grateful Dead. Overall, disc two of these three the one that I have played the least amount of times between the three, frankly, not that it's bad. It's good music. It's just the shortest one. Number one and number two, it doesn't have the highlights. I don't think that discs one and disc three have agree, disagree, different thoughts together. Completely agree. Um, the Samson and Delilah stands out. Um, but just because, I mean, they, they don't like other, many other songs. They don't miss with that song in 77. Right. Um, the high time, very cool that they don't play it that often. Then, then they stopped playing it for over a year after this. But yeah, solid, not spectacular on this disc. Yeah. Well, 
Disc three is spectacular. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Disc three is amazing. I have listened to this disc. This is the seventh day that I've been playing this record, and I think I've probably listened to disc three ten times. I love it very much. I think it's so good. And it starts with a, a trip to Terrapin Station. So, like we were saying, from here out, Terrapin Station through the end of Around and Around, there are no breaks. None. It's just a, one continuous jam that lasts, I think, 70 minutes, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, but it's right around that much. Each of these songs is played very well, and Terrapin Station is no exception. The beginning in the full complete picture of what's happening in set two. I love the beginning of this song because Jerry starts playing and then he takes a beat and then picks back up and the rest of the band comes in and it sounds really cool. And it's also like this interesting little beat where it's like, this is the one break that they took for the next 70 minutes. Where he's just kind of like noodling around with the beginning of Terrapin and then takes a break and then we're off and running. can tell that this is early in Terrapin's life. It feels a little raw. There are parts of it that aren't are not ironed out, and that's a good thing cuz yeah. it doesn't sound like the, you know, usual um assembly line Terrapin station uh that comes out later. This is I wrote down that it was raw yet refreshing. Fair. And and it was just it was enjoyable to listen to. I'm going to argue a little bit with the notion of a conveyor belt. Is that what you said? Conveyor belt terrapin Assembly station? line. Yeah. Assembly line terrapin <laughs> station. That song is way too complicated for there to be an assembly no, line version. That's true. That's true. Um, but there are there are parts throughout the song that are done consistently over the years. Um, yeah. And You're right. And there were little, little moments in here, um, like what Jerry was doing on his guitar when it's... Um, like when it all gets quiet and then he mm-hmm. plays the little melody and then it comes back in where I was like, Oh, I've never heard that in a Terrapin before. Um, like a little extra beat delay or like a little, a note hit a little differently or bent a little differently on the guitar string. So that it was, it was refreshing to listen to. Man, I love that analysis. I think that what you were just describing, it reminds me of the way I've heard John Mayer describe Jerry Garcia's guitar playing where he's like, you know, some people work on like bars, other people work on chords or notes. Jerry is working on like molecules. Like every <laughs> little thing that he's doing is just like completely unique to him and different. One thing that I will say about this song is that when I got the CD, my in-laws were in town and my father-in-law and I were the only ones in the house I was playing it. My mother-in-law is not, she's not ahead. And so she and my wife were out of the house and I was, I put this on while my father-in-law and I were hanging out and he was like, what is this? Is this the Grateful Dead? And then 
part of this song was playing and he before i could even answer he was like oh that's jerry on the guitar yep that's the dead and i was like <laughs> man you got a good ear and also like you know i kind of forget what a unique and distinct style of playing he has yeah and and that bleeds through in particular on this song um just in general in the the grand scheme of it but yeah wow good yeah. ear on him good ear by uh john but yeah i mean this i i really like this version of terrapin like you said it's very early in terrapin's career the terrapin station album wouldn't come out for another two months after this show um but terrapin is yet another song sorry terrapin station is yet another song from that album that was played during this show every song from that album with the exception of one i believe um yeah every song except for dancing in the streets was played on this at this show and dancing in the streets they had been playing before that they just had never put it on an album um and they had kind of changed up the style that they played it in by this part of the 70s so terrapin great way to start set two um, one thing that I that stood out to me in a set where the drumming stood out many times was the soft drumming that was going that they played going into the heavier drumming of the last 45 seconds of this song. You know, it hits that kind of softer part. I don't know what the hell Mickey's playing. It might be that he he like he changed the sound of his snare drum. You know, like unclipped the the bottom part of the oh, snare. Oh yeah, maybe. Or he could have had a bongo in his kit or something, but there's just like a very different sound that he's using to fill in space um, by the end of the song. And Mickey had a huge hand in the composition of this music in the studio. Um, it's actually a pretty contentious point if you if you read about how it was recorded. The pro- the producer Keith Olson, who helped them with this, took out a lot of what of what Mickey was doing and replaced it with different stuff that the band was kind of pissed about. And I think Jerry and Mickey went back into the studio surreptitiously and re-recorded stuff because they didn't like what the producer had done. So Mickey, it doesn't surprise me that he had a big hand in kind of creating the full sound of this song. He really put a stamp on it. But what he's doing on this song sounds really good. And this is just, I thought, a, a good early version of Terrapin Station estimated so we could go in from terrapin to estimated profit this was the most played song of 1977 um more than drums so they played this song um 51 times throughout 1977 which is i mean amazing that's all but nine shows including every single show of may 77 there's an estimated profit what makes it slightly different is this is only the fourth time they had played estimated profit in eyes of the world, which is, I mean, that became a, a very a chalk combination, right? Yeah, exactly. And so they debuted that combo on May 13th, 1977. And then this was the fourth time they had played them together the night before. Like I said earlier on this episode, they had played estimated profit by itself. And so it has a different feel once you combine it with eyes of the world. I think that this is a good, not great 477 version. It's hard to kind of, you have to kind of separate yourself from the fact that all of these versions are really good. Fantastic, right? (laughs) Yeah, but um, Jerry takes a minute, maybe 30 or 40 seconds to get his guitar sounding the way he wants it. And so at the very beginning of this song, all of the other band members sound is clear. The transition is really good. And I think that Phil kind of leads the way. 
um, which makes sense because this is a pretty bass heavy song and what Phil's doing on it sounds really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, what stood out to you on this song? I just wrote that there was some swagger in the song. Like Bob was sounding confident. Phil was sounding confident. They were, they were just, and maybe it's cause, and I didn't know this, that they had played that the most times in 77. They knew, maybe they just knew like, this is a song we play and play well. Could you hear Keith in the beginning of Estimated Prophet at all? I could not hear. I know he's he's playing the organ. You can hear it pretty clearly by the end of the song. But in the beginning, I like could not make him out in the mix at all. Um, I mean, usually I would take notes on like if the keys sounded particularly good or if you know, he was doing something a little different. And I, I took no notes on the keys in the song. So Interesting. Yeah, I'll I'll go back and listen again. But I wonder if maybe... He was like fiddling around and not doing too much. Yeah, maybe he could have been, um, I guess, potentially switching because Terrapin Station, he would not have been on an organ, so he could have been switching around his gear a little bit. Yeah, I guess. Maybe. Um, the the only other thing on Estimated Profit that I wrote down is that there's a really cool rhythm that Bobby's playing in the last minute of the song. Jerry's notes at that point, it's the um, Indian bead of notes that we heard about on the inside of the album it's just, it's like a waterfall it just keeps coming and then and bob is doing bob is just doing interesting stuff behind it yeah i i put a star next to this song because i thought i i thought that this stood out as one of the strong points um was just the the confidence and the swagger that they put behind this song um and moving into a truly beautiful rendition of Eyes of the World. I I agree. I think that this combo, this estimated Eyes combo, kind of breathed some new life into Eyes of the World. Personally, my favorite, Eyes of the World might be my favorite Grateful Dead song. I love this song. And my personal favorite era is probably 74. I don't think that's a hot take. I think that Eyes, eyes heads love 74 eyes of the world what i really like about that era is that there's some space in the song they give it room to breathe a little bit whereas the 77 versions are hot it's a much zippier pace than the 74 versions and it really really works here that pace the pacing of this song coming after estimated profit sounds excellent and in between the two songs that it's in between, it sounds really good. Mm-hmm. This song, the first two minutes of of Eyes of the World, I wrote down relentless soloing from Jerry. This is actually the one where I wrote Indian bead string of notes <laughs> because <laughs> he is just, I mean, he sounds great right off the bat. And then that entire intro section, like the first two minutes, sounds so damn good. I mean, about as good an Eyes of the World um, intro section as as you'll hear, I think. And like I said, I, I love this song, so it's I'm not uh, I'm not saying that lightly. And then I thought the the drum ending was cool as we transition to the drum opening of Not Fade Away. Yeah, so there's no drums, um, there's no dedicated drums track on this album and um i think that the beginning as you're saying of um not fade away is about as close as we get to that 
Yeah, I agree. The The drum transition out of Eyes of the World into Not Fade Away, I thought was really good. I think that it takes the drummers like um, 30 seconds to like really get locked in together in Not Fade Away, which makes sense. You know, they're both doing kind of similar things. And as like a, as a novice drummer, I was listening to that earlier today while I was driving around and just thinking like, that would be so hard <laughs> to, like the, the to be as locked in as they would get on that song. I think that Not Fade Away, this is a 17-minute long Not Fade Away. I think it might be the longest one they ever played. I mean, it, especially the longest one if you take out like an extended crowd noise section like the in the mm-hmm. 90 version where the band leaves the stage and comes back for an encore. I think that this, this may legitimately be um, their longest. 17 minutes is, is pretty damn hard to beat. And on that, good. Because this Not Fade Away is exceptional. I mean, 11 out of 10, not fade away, that came out. Um, just fantastic. I could not agree more. There are standout moments for every single member of the band in mm-hmm. this song. And as much as I do think that it is a drums showcase, at the end of the day, the, the beginning part is all drums. And then, um, well, it's not all drums, but there, it's a drum-focused beginning. And then by the end, the drums have kind of taken over too. just what they're doing together. And this, so there's no like long open spacey jam in this disc too. It's just a powerhouse of long jammed out versions of these songs. But mm-hmm. the middle segment of not fade away, like the, I don't know, like four minute to eight minute mark. What Bill is doing is not a like typical like rock backbeat and he's all over the place on his kit first he's you know hitting the snare then he's just doing cymbals Mm -hmm. while mickey is on a cowbell and other stuff and it's just it's a, a big showcase for the drummers but then in addition to that you have phil you can hear his bass clear as a bell throughout much of this song he sounds excellent Jerry's solos are great and Bob's doing great stuff with the rhythms the only one the only person that I didn't specifically call out in my notes is Keith and I'm sure if I went back and listened just for him I would be as impressed with what he's doing because this version is an all-timer They gave this some edge. They really drew it out, but not in a bad way. And uh, I think this is the coolest version of this song I've ever heard. I agree. I mean, I, I was just like last week listening to uh, the Cornell version of this song, which I think a lot of people would probably say is like the, you know, prodigal, <laughs> not fade away. And I think that this version is better. It's so good. It's 17 so minutes. Good. Hard to and beat. It, and it's tough because it's in this run of um, songs they did just, just didn't stop playing in a row. So it's part of what I think made coming into it so good was the, the drums intro. But 
even if you take it out by itself. I mean, man, just all around fantastic. Yeah, the not fade away, going down the road, feeling bad, not fade away jam is is pretty classic. They don't go back into not fade away here, though. They go from not fade away to going down the road, feeling bad, to around and around, to end set two. And the Terrapin estimated eyes lead in to those three songs I really like, but the not fade away, like you said, it stands alone as an excellent version. Then if you zoom out just a bit further and you focus on like this not fade away into going down the road feeling bad, it's like one of my favorite versions of that combo as well because the going down the road feeling bad, there's like an interesting corollary going on here. Not fade away, the beginning jam, they give it a lot of time to hit. And there were like three different times where I was like, okay, now the vocals are going to come in, and they didn't. Now the vocals are going to come in, and they didn't. Now the vocals are going to come in, and then they finally did on Not Fade Away. Going Down the Road Feeling Bad was the exact opposite. I kept thinking they were going to end that song, and then they just kept going with it. <laughs> and it it was great. Jerry's vocals sound, sound really good on that song. That's a song that I've always really liked. And I like that they didn't go back into Not Fade Away. I, I liked the way that it went into Around and Around. And um, well, well, before we get into Around and Around, what did you think of um, Going Down the Road Feeling Bad? No, I, j- I just thought it was a groovy, smooth version. If anything, the first four minutes are their, you know, their break, air quotes, with this run of songs. Because um, they start to cool down a little bit in the middle. But then at about the 5 minute 15, 5 minute 20 mark, they're right back up to being hot. So it was just like a, it's like an active cool down while working out. That's kind of what they were doing. Like an active playing rest and then five, five-ish minutes into the song, they're back up and hot and pushing into around and around. Yeah. And, and then in around and around, there's a, there, this I would say is the weakest song of the second set for me. Not just because, I, I mean... This song was played 23 times as a set to closer in 1977, by far the most common, the most common of this whole era. I've heard it many, many times. Listening to a lot of um, May 77 around the time that this release came out, I'm more than familiar with (laughs) different versions of Around and Around. And I just, I don't think it's the most interesting song that they play. But this version stands out because Jerry is... not teasing because they already played it, but he's like reprising going down the road, feeling bad throughout his guitar playing in this song, which is really good. There's a part in the middle where they really stumble on this song. Um, and you know, it is what it is. It's the grateful dead that happens. But overall, I thought this was a a very good version of a song that they played extremely commonly in this era. Yeah. They just played for like 65 minutes in a row. So they could have (laughs) one mistake. Yeah. Um, I think that's true. We, she, you know, because it was so many uh, jammy songs, not a lot of areas where she could excel in the second set. But here was, I think, Donna's high point of set two with her harmony with Bob near the end of Around and Around. Other than that, I agree 100% with what you were saying about it. Yeah, the transition into the song was really good, too. The Mm -hmm. The very last of all these transitions, you know, they're jamming throughout the whole thing. There are no tuning breaks. But the transition from going down the road feeling bad into around and around, another one that Phil is kind of leading. Um, he's on the forefront of it with his bass. Um, it just sounds really good. So then we get into the encore, the last song of this really great record, this really good album, which is Uncle John's Band. 
a song that we both like. This is a good yeah. era for this song. It is. And how often do they encore with this song? That's a good question. Five times. They did five Uncle John's band um, encores throughout May 77. But it's a good encore song. It is. And especially this style of Uncle John's band, which is not, I think, what we're used to with like the set two, you know, jammy 16 minute version. It's a quick, fast paced tempo. And it, it, that works as an encore. Like the people are high energy and this version of this song is high energy. Yeah, I agree. I, there are also some versions of uncle John's band that are pretty slow and mm-hmm. this is not that it's good. It, the tempo changes a couple times throughout the song, but in a, in a good way, it, it works. And I do think that this is a good song to send the people home to. Um, especially a lot of the song is about, being kind and that's always a good message to send people away with right so right not bad i mean as far as the other songs that they were doing for encores around this time you have you know u.s blues johnny be good broke down palace um i'd take this song over any of those and it's not it's not a saturday night but i take it over one more saturday night too That's all of the, that's the music from May 26, 1977 at the Baltimore Civic Center. So let's kind of, let's wrap this up and take this thing home. So this is now the sixth Dave's Picks that I have had. And one way that I look back on how much I liked a release, whether it's Dave's Picks, whether it's in a box set is, do I take the time to rip it to my computer? I don't do that for every Dave's Picks. Like I, Dave's Picks volume 36, which was from Hartford in 1987. I did that with, I thought that was a really good one. The first one from last year in um, 78 in, at William and Mary, I did that for. The next two I didn't. And then volume 40 last year from uh, 1990, I also didn't, although I really, really liked that release. I just, I played it on my CD player nonstop. This was the first one since the since volume 37 that I was like, this is so good that I want it on my phone so that I can go back and keep listening to it. And so for me, that is a, a sign that that I, I really, really like this release. Do you, it, any similar experience for you with this record? Um, I don't have an external CD player, so I don't have a way to burn it onto my computer. But uh, I okay. think... I think how I know that this will um, be be a a release that I enjoy for years and years to come. I think disc three is going to be stuck in my car CD player for quite a long time. Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. Okay. So how would you, if you were going to play this for someone who is or is not a deadhead, what would be the way that you would do it? 
I think I would just put in track one of disc one and be yeah, like, just let listen to this music never stopped. Yeah. And then right into um, that sugary, like, hey, just listen to these two and okay. enjoy that. Um, and not if, but when they are intrigued, um, just let disc one finish out. I would just go right from the beginning. And then uh, same with disc two. I mean, I think the Samson and Delilah, and then I think the high time non-dead people would enjoy that song. Like it sounds different, a little change of pace. Um, and then when they're ready, go with disc three and just let them enjoy that. Just let them steepen it. I had two questions about the one about the whole release and then, you know, one about the songs. Um, if all three discs were like rolling off a cliff and you could dive and you can only save one of the discs from falling um, into the abyss. I mean, I know what you're going to say, but which disc would you die for and save of the three CDs? It's, it's disc three, Th- three by a mile. It's not even a discussion. <laughs> yeah. It's disc three by a mile. Um, and yeah, then I, I would definitely be saving disc three just to quickly expound on that. It's just because it's, it's, it's not fully unique, but there's no drums. There's no space. It's not like there are no real moments of like wide open jamming. It's just like a consistent rocking jammy. Great second set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, the last time we did this, um, we both were torn between two songs and had a third honorable mention. Um, but if you were to make the imaginary playlist where you can only take one song from this uh from dave's picks 41 what what was your struggle what two songs were you between but ultimately what's the one song you're dragging onto that imaginary playlist the struggle would be between sugary and not fade away and i think i would take sugary wow okay my struggle would be between the music never stopped and not fade away and uh, I would take the not fade away. Um, my honorable mention here would be um, this estimated profit because I thought it was thought it was nice. I thought it was great. Um, but this not fade away. I just like even though it was part of the continuous jam. Once that continuous jam was over, I went back and just like played this on repeat a couple times because so I was just like, whoa. Yeah. Um, you can't go wrong with it. I mean, it, it is like a special standout version of not fade away. I think that, like I said, those would be the two that I would be between, but I think that the reason why I would give the edge to sugary over not fade away is because kind of similar, or it's related to what you're talking about. For me, part of what makes the not fade away so great is the way that it is planted in the middle of this progression between the songs. Uh, I, I really like the way that, it fits in with those. And so I would, I'd rather listen to it within that segment than as a one-off on my imaginary grateful dead playlist. Whereas the sugary stands on its own two legs. Yeah, that's a fair point. All right. So I want to read you a second comment from Jim in Maryland and see how it strikes you. So Jim in Maryland in talking about his feelings about this release, he said something that I find very intriguing. 77 is not on my radar for a host of reasons. But every now and then, it really does scratch the itch. 77 for me is the practically perfect Grateful Dead band, otherwise known as my supermodel ex-girlfriend. 
We don't, <laughs> we don't date anymore, but when we reconnect, I'm rarely disappointed. I like my Grateful Dead warts and all and value risk over stability, but that's just me. I doubt if I listen to this day in and day out, but this is top shelf Grateful Dead. I would put it very much on par with Dave's Picks 1. The main difference being Scarlet Fire in Grateful in Dave's Picks 1 versus Estimated Eyes in Dave's Picks 41. But both shows are solid and rock from start to finish. No warts. Practically perfect in every way. But that's just my brain wrapping itself around this problem. Interpretations vary. What you think and how you process it is 100% correct. No wrong answers. Worthy Grateful Dead, a monumental release. Now can we get some warty 1968 for goodness sakes? <laughs> Less on the worthy, more on the worth it. Jim in Maryland, great. I, I mean, shout out to you, man, especially in commenting on uh, an album that was recorded in your home state. I just, I, I thought that was a very interesting way of putting it. Yeah. Um, Jim from Maryland, get in touch. We want to hear more because you sound like you got some good, uh, some good analysis. So get in touch, man. Yeah. Jim in Maryland, seriously, if you can find a way to, if you listen to this, I guess, which is a, probably a long shot, but yeah. if you do if listen you, to this. If you're one of our 13 <laughs> listeners, Jim, please, please let us know. <laughs> yeah. Please get in touch. I kind of, I'm intrigued by the concept of less on the worthy, more on the worth it. There is something about the Grateful Dead, what he's talking about, about risk over stability. To me, a lot of the great Grateful Dead songs, versions, shows are ones where it feels like they're on the cliff's edge and it could very easily go completely off the rails and end in a catastrophic <laughs> moment. But instead they like bring it right back in and it ends up being really great. And so I do understand what he's saying, but I don't think that there's anything bad about stability. I think that we both kind of recognized it. We said many times during this that these are just such good versions that it's hard to really say much about them. But yeah, sometimes just that's, solid, not spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. Like, sometimes that's what you need, though. And um, I think this is a great release. So thank you to Dave. Well, thank you to you, Dave, but also to Dave Lemieux and Rhino and the Grateful Dead, everyone who is involved in making this record. Great job by them. So yeah, what, what's our what's our next listen? We don't have any live releases coming out. Dave's Picks Volume 42 will come out in May. So we don't have any structure really between now and then. I, no, I mean, I, th- I think that there are a few ways that we could go with this. Our first show was February 5th. Today's February 5th, so kind of timely. Mm-hmm. We could try to keep that going and go for an early March show. We could say i mean the risk of doing that is then we get caught in this cycle Just, of yeah we're only listening to 77 <laughs> well, well i think uh not to overthink it jim from maryland kind of laid it out what's a warty show from 68 that we can pop on next to please jim and maybe we stay with early march 68 um to kind of go on that calendar theme okay so jim i love uh Giving it up to Jim from Maryland and going with a 68 show. Hey listeners, this is a postscript to the episode. We actually cut out the last couple minutes of what we recorded because after the episode was over, I decided to reach out to Jim in Maryland and see what he thinks we should do for our next show. He was kind enough to get back a few recommendations and we're actually going to do the two shows that he recommended as our next two shows, beginning with, for our next episode... The concert from October 12th, 1968, recorded at the Avalon Ballroom in San Francisco. 
So that is what you should queue up to listen to for our next episode. And until then, for Dave, I'm Alex, and we bid you good night. Good night, good night, good night, good night, good night.